Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Can we give it up for our worship and tech team again? That was kind of, yep, there you go. I can't think of a better way to get started into this message. Jake, thank you so much for bringing that out as always. I hope that you're doing well. My name is Jed. It is an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. So whether you are a guest with us or a regular attender, we are just so glad that you would give us a portion of your weekend to worship together, to recalibrate, and to focus on what matters most. As many of you know, of course, this is Veterans Weekend, and so today Britt has collaborated with Chaplain Steve Benfield. So Steve, if you would take to the stage for this moment, let's give Steve a round of applause. Thanks so Good morning. And uh, happy Veterans Day weekend. Um, we are going to recognize and honor our veterans this morning, but first of all, I wonder if we have any Marines in the house. Can you identify, identify yourselves? Okay. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, 244 years ago, today, in a bar called Tun Tavern, the United States Marine Corps was established. Yep. Right. And on, on November, November 10th, 1775, the first United States Marine Corps enlisted in the United States Marines. Happy birthday, Marines. Yeah. Oddly enough, 18 days later, on November 28, 1775, the United States Navy Chaplain Corps was created. And some speculate it was to get the Marines out of the bar. Hurrah. <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, I enlisted in the United States Navy uh, at age 20 in 1994. And over the years since I wore the uniform, um, many people have come up to me, and, and you know that those of you that have wore or are currently wearing the uniform, people will come up to us and thank us for our service. It took me years. Um, to respond appropriately to that comment. I used to say, thank you for saying that. Thank you for your support. If I wanted to be funny, I'd say thank you for paying your taxes. Um, now, I think I found the appropriate response. I say, it's my pleasure. Because it is an absolute pleasure to represent our country in uniform. This morning, before we do recognize our veterans, I want to talk to you who have not wore the uniform and recognize you on behalf of our veterans. We want to thank you for your support. You have no idea what it means when somebody says thank you for your service. It makes it worth it because our nation hasn't always been that way. My dad's a Vietnam veteran and he tells me stories of when they came back from combat. So to you that have not wore the uniform on behalf of us veterans in here and those who are currently serving, thank you for your support. Now I want to ask our veterans to please stand. If you have served or are currently serving, will you please stand and rise to your feet and let us recognize you? 
please continue standing. I'm just a chaplain. I don't bear arms. I don't knock down doors. I don't exchange gunfire. I want to thank you guys that are standing right now, and the church wants to thank you all for being def defenders and protectors of freedom. It is because of you that stand here right now that we are in this church worshiping Jesus Christ this morning. Thank you. You can sit down, please. And we will uh, we'll ask God's blessings upon you right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we first of all want to thank you for the United States of America and what an awesome nation that we have. Thank you for allowing us the honor and privilege to live here. Lord, we also honor our veterans this morning and want to thank you for them. God, for their courage and sacrifice that they have made along the years. Lord, thank you for the hardships that they've endured on our behalf so that we could enjoy freedom. Lord, we'd ask that you bless them. Bless them with a supernatural peace that passes all understanding. Lord, thank you for the families who have also sacrificed. And we ask your blessings upon them as well. God, today we thank you for our veterans. We respect them. We honor them. We are proud of them. And today we pray for them. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for this time where we can recognize those who have worn the uniform. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chaplain Benefield. And thank you for all of you who have served. I come from a family where my dad and his brothers are cousins rather than the Navy or the Marines. And so this is a special weekend for my family as well. We are in the sixth and final week of a series that we have entitled Made Whole. And throughout the course of these past six weeks, we have been attempting to look at how the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, has bearing not just for us as individuals and in our personal salvation, which is incredibly important, of course, that by God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross and resurrected from the graves that we can be invited into new life and reconciled eternally with God, not just someday, but beginning now. And yet in this series, we've attempted to look at a fuller picture of what that means for us and how if the good news of Jesus Christ really is that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, then it's not just about something in the future, as Britt talked about last week but that how every single element of what it means for us to be broken human beings, our relationships, our systems, our religions, every square inch in space of the cosmos that is his proclaims that it's his. And he's reconciling it and attempting to make all things right. And you and I get to be a part of that. So this morning... As Levi talked about during our, our time of worship, we're going to be speaking about broken religion. And broken religion comes because we as humans are broken ourselves. And so to visually demonstrate that, I know we've had a lot of staying this morning, but we're going to do a little bit more calisthenics today. 
And so I'd like to have this section, if you would, please stand to your feet. So this part of the room, please, if you would, all of you in this section, stand to your feet. This will communicate something to us. This part of our room constitutes about 25% of our attendance in the worship center. And the Pew Center for Research, which is a think and fact tank based in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, has done extensive research and study over the years about the religious demographic in America. And its findings that conclude the last decade of research are startling. Pew has shown and seen that 26% of the American population now is religiously unaffiliated, which means that these folks would identify as atheist or agnostic or non-religious. We would term these individuals the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And what's staggering about this number is that it has grown by more than 30 million individuals in the last decade. And that acceleration of growth has corresponded to Christianity's rapid decline as well. In that time, Christians in America, we have lost 10 million or so. If this portion of the room, you guys can keep standing up to this middle here. Elena, you're right there. Why don't you stand up too? So everyone here right in this section, if you would stand up. We're at about 50% of our room, and if we were to go just a little bit over, we can stand up as well, 51%. 51% of millennials who are people in my age bracket would no longer consider themselves religious or Christian. And if we were to take it up to, let's go to Amy and Lauren and Jenny, why don't you guys stand up here, the rest of you in that kind of section. Research from Barna, another survey group, has shown that individuals between the ages of 19 and 29, 65% of them in that age range will walk away from their faith. Now, if I could have the whole room stand. I don't know about you, but those statistics are pretty staggering. Every single person in those numbers has a story. And even though we looked at those numbers and they may be startling and fear-inducing, I would like to offer first a hopeful perspective that Jesus Christ isn't scared. He's not. Because as we know, even though people can affiliate as Christians, Jesus didn't come to create Christians or bring us more religion. In John 10.10, it says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Mark 10.45, it says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many And Jesus says that he comes to seek and save the lost. And so even though we can look across this room and recognize that we are 100% of the problem, 
that certainly religion's brokenness, Christianity's brokenness has to do with us, and we contribute to that in many ways. The good news of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that we can walk out of these doors at the end of this service and actually choose to be a part of his reconciling work around us. And so today, if you hear yourself in this message and you feel conviction I would urge you to reconsider that God is inviting you to not just stand idly or watch as these things continue to get worse, but instead to take part in what he is doing. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for that. I'm really grateful. I told uh, Chaplain Benefield uh, that I was really happy that when he did his little piece that he had a joke uh, because I don't have too much levity this morning. It's going to be a little bit more serious. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Matthew 23. And in this section, Jesus is in the final week of his life. And Matthew Owens caught me in the hallway and reminded me that this is Jesus' last sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. And so what a great piece of Scripture that we can look into. Now here's the deal. There's a lot in this Scripture passage that we could try and uncover contextually and historically, but we don't have all the time in the world to do deep exegesis this morning. And so what I have chosen to do in your note sheets, you will see seven statements which correspond to the seven woes, the seven indictments that Jesus makes against these Pharisees, this religious sect of the Jews who are political and have great prominence. And what we can see during Jesus' time is that their initial intrigue with him turns to stark opposition by the time that he is arrested and then they're crucified. So what I've chosen to do is I will give us a statement that summarizes a section of Scripture, and then I'm just going to read that to you. Is that okay? So here is the preface. You are self-absorbed and have used your religion as a way to get what you crave. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do. For they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah." The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So here's that first woe that's in your note sheet. You hypocritically shut people out of the kingdom which you yourselves fail to be in. In verse 13, the citation is wrong in your note sheet. Verse 13, it says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Number two, you are hell-bent on conversion, but then you completely mislead 
your converts. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Number three, you are lost in the minutiae of religious banter, and you use faulty logic to defend your inconsistent theology. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind are you, for which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by the one who is seated upon it. And number four, you are legalistic about giving God what you think he wants, but you are missing his heart for justice, mercy, and faith. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Well, number five, you are secretly greedy, consumeristic, and self-serving. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside also may become clean. And lastly, you are prideful about your religious heritage and tradition, but you are oblivious to what God has been trying to communicate and is currently doing. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. I told you you'd be a little bit more heavy today. I don't know about you, but that's a little uncomfortable. And I bet that most of us don't have our life verses picked out for Matthew 23. And I think it'd be really funny if we opened up our Jesus' calling devotion in the morning and we heard that sweet voice of Jesus turn into this condemning, judgmental, harsh figure that we see here. But there's reason for that. 
and the strain of the prophets, whenever there's this type of voice and call, Jesus, like those before him, he doesn't just speak from frustration. He speaks from knowing truly what people really desperately need. And it's not more rules or traditions or regulations. They need freedom to life that can only come through relationship and knowledge of him. And so Jesus, in this moment, speaks these words that we may want to distance ourselves from, but I hope that we find ourselves leaning into what he might actually have to say to us. Here is the fill in the blank that's at the top of your page that goes through the sections. Jesus critiques the scribes and the Pharisees in a way that he might critique Christians. I won't read all the passages, but let me read through these summations really quickly. Woe to you, Christians. You are self-absorbed and have used your religion as a way to get what you crave. Woe to you, Christians. You hypocritically shut people out of the kingdom which you yourselves fail to be in. Woe to you, Christians. You are hell-bent on conversion, but then you completely mislead your converts. Woe to you, Christians, you are lost in the minutiae of religious banter, and you use faulty logic to defend your inconsistent theology. Woe to you, Christians, you are illegalistic about giving God what you think he wants, but you are missing his heart for justice, mercy, and faith. Woe to you, Christians, you are secretly greedy, consumeristic, and self-serving. Woe to you, Christians, you want others to believe that you have it all together, but inside you are incredibly filthy and just as broken. Woe to you, Christians, you are prideful about your religious heritage and tradition, but you are oblivious to what God has been trying to communicate and is currently doing. Ouch. When we say the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, that it pierces and penetrates, that it divides soul from spirit and joint from marrow, that it judges the secret thoughts and the hearts of man, passages like this should make this abundantly clear that we don't just read the Bible for warm and fuzzies, but we read it because we need to see ourselves clearly. Because even though there are 2,000 years that separate Jesus from his original audience, we can find ourselves, and I hope you can see in these woes, just like I can. I'm not putting this on you. Trust me, I can look in the mirror and see myself in every single one of these statements. So what do we do? Do we pack it up and leave with our heads low because the statistics are troubling and because Jesus has harsh words for us? I don't know if that's the best response. So I'd like to introduce you to a little theologian or two on the screen who has some great words for you. For God so loved the Lord that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. God did not send his Son to condemn the Lord, but to save the Lord through him. John 3, 16 and 17. That is, yeah, you can clap for that. That's okay. That's uh, my older son, Thadden, his uh, little brother, Titus, and I wish I could show you the outtakes. We tried about three times. It's super funny. 
uh, several weeks ago. Thadden, who you guys have seen on the screen before reciting scripture, it was a Tuesday. I said, hey, bud, you want to learn some more? He said, sure. So we uh, did John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 that day. And on Thursday, he had it down. Uh, but it was super funny when we were doing outtakes, his middle brother who doesn't, Titus doesn't know, know what's going on. He, he in this row is just kind of whispering stuff in his ears and Thadden starts hiccuping. And then Truy, our, our third born True, it comes in the scene and he sits on Thadden's lap and, and basically starts hitting him. And so uh, that, I'm just telling you that. So if you wonder why your kids aren't memorizing the Bible, trust me, our kids are normal and messed up just like me and you. So the reason why I love that passage of scripture is because it is a Pharisee who prompts Jesus to share about what we'd call being a born-again Christian. John chapter 3 comes because a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a high leader, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, it equivalent to our Supreme Court, he was not only intrigued by Jesus enough from a distance, he decided that he would come forward to him, albeit in the nighttime, and he would ask Jesus to explain more clearly to him. And so even though Jesus, toward the end of his life, has these very harsh words for the Pharisees, people just like us, we see, of course, in passages like this, that there is so much more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Those who believe in him are saved. And those who do not believe in him are condemned already because they do not believe in the name of the only son of God. That and I'll get to that stuff and more later. But the truth is, it is about Jesus Christ. Look at how Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. It's not up on the screens. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time in the mother's womb and be born and Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. And then their dialogue continues, culminating what we see as the most famous verse. And there's so much here, and we don't have the time to go into it, but there are just a handful of things I would like to point out about what we would term being a born-again Christian. The Holy Spirit regenerating and making us alive in Christ because of what he's done. Not because we're deserving of it, but because of what he has done and his goodness. The sad part is when we hear the word born again Christian for a lot of the world, a bad taste comes to their mouth. Because when they hear and see born-again Christian propagated, they don't think about people who are necessarily living as Jesus has called and invited us to do. A lot of us that bear that born-again Christian title look just like the Pharisees. And again, I'm not putting this on you. I'm saying I am just like that. So when Jesus talks about being born again, he means this. Number one, 
We will leave behind what is comfortable. I love this born-again language earlier on in John. It talks about to those who believed in his name and received him, he gave the right to become children of God. This birth imagery is so important because when babies come out of the womb, they're not screaming, I did it. I'm born again or born. It'd be weird if they're born again at that point, but I made it. Now babies are crying and they're helpless. Why? Because they left the most awesome place on the planet called their mother's womb. And it was comfortable in there. And thank God we don't remember our birth because I'm sure we would be incredibly more traumatized than we already are if we could remember that experience. This imagery evokes a sense of recognizing that when we profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the goal is complete transformation, so much so that he would use imagery of the smallest and tiniest of human beings. And when you become a child or a baby when you're born, the goal is to grow up and be raised in a way that you would see the world. And here's your last fill in the blank See the world in the way that our Father, who has distinct plans for raising our growing family, would. We have a Father, God, who has a desire for all to be saved. And He won't force it on us. The choice is here, but you and I, just because we have made the choice at some point in our past, cannot and should not, I guess we can, but we should not resign ourselves to being comfortable just saying, I did it, I'm saved, and I'm good. Salvation, this ongoing process of being sanctified, being conformed in the image of his son, Jesus Christ, means that the world would recognize and see that there is something different about us. Religion that is broken starts right here. Hearts that are greedy and self-serving, that believe that once we're taken care of, all is good. But it's so much better to see that we have a father who's not annoyed by us, but is calling us along to participate and to join in be a part of the healing and the reconciliation, the restoration. And this morning, it's not just Veterans Sunday or weekend. In fact, all around the globe, people are celebrating Orphan Sunday. James, the brother of Jesus, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to take care of widows and orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We get real dirty and filthy when we separate ourselves from those on the edge and those that truly need taken care of. And I don't know what your story is, but I would imagine that even in this room, there are individuals who thankfully, because of God's work and moving in people's lives, perhaps you were brought into a family And every single one of us that's here, if we profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may I remind you that we get to be a part of a family where God's wanting us to do real things right now. And so as it is Orphan Sunday, 
we've decided to invite up a friend of ours, Jill, who is representative of ICA, International Christian Adoptions, which is right down the road from us. And last year in November, ICA was here, and we did a Sunday where Britt and I interviewed via video families in our church who had felt urged and called by God to open up their homes for these kids. And you know, the coolest thing is that after that Sunday, we actually had more families who felt the urge and the call of God to step forth and do something. But this morning, as Jill is going to share, it's not just for those of us who sense that call, but there's something for every single one of us. Jill, take it away. Thank you, Pastor Jed, and thank you, Lisa, for inviting us back. Um, yeah, sometimes when we think of the orphan crisis, we can get a little overwhelmed with how can we help. Um, and of course, there's always the need for families to open up their homes and their hearts to uh, take care of the children uh, that are hurting and are traumatized. There's always that need. But we also, um, because we are all called as Christians to care for the orphans, um, just because we don't open up our homes doesn't mean that we can't care for the orphans. So I wanted to just share um, with you a few uh, creative and practical uh, ways that um, you could do that. You could step up and make a difference. Um, there's the list, yeah. So we've got this list, and it's also um, on your handout of just kind of some out-of-the-box creative ways that maybe you could make a difference um, in a child's life. And I want to give you a few real-life examples. Uh, we recently had a woman call our agency. Uh, she's a skincare specialist, and she said, I want to provide, I want to give free facials for some of the teenagers that are in your care. How awesome is that? You know, talk about out-of-the-box thinking. Uh, we also have a family we're working with that they want to be mentors. They just want to come alongside some high school students that are in the foster care system and just kind of help them with, like, college applications, um, taking tours on college campuses. Um, so, again, just a really um, out-of-the-box way of thinking, how can I help these kids? Um, I'll use my husband as an example. He is a... Um, principal. He's an elementary school principal. So this is a way that you can use your vocation. Um, he makes it a point to make sure that he knows who are all the children on my campus who are foster children or being adopted. And he'll just go out of his way, do that extra high five, that extra, hey, buddy, how's it going? Just so they feel valued and seen and heard. And then he also reaches out to the families that are caring for them to just commend them and let them know, I'm here to support you. Um, so these are just some examples of you know, how can you use your skills, your talents, your passions, your vocation to really make a difference um, in a child's life. And the last thing I want to leave you with is one of the big ways you can make a difference is to wrap around the families that are providing the care, the ones that are in the trenches doing the 24-7 hard work of helping kids heal from their trauma. And I know for a fact, right here at Sunridge, you have several families who are doing that hard work um, or they're preparing to. So I just encourage you to find out who are those families, um, how can I wrap around them, make sure they know you're praying for them, you're supporting them, and again, come up with those practical, creative ways that you can really make a difference um, to support them and the children that they're caring for. Um, please come talk to us. Uh, Mallory and I will be out in the hallway, and we would love to talk with you more um, about how you can help. Thank you. Thank you, Jill.
I've asked Jill to stay up here for this concluding part of service. We covered a lot of ground today that probably sounded pessimistic and hurtful. And when I think about children who do not have the adequate care of parents, you can imagine stories that seem pessimistic and lack hope. But just as we see with Jesus Christ, when he speaks directly to us, it is not just that we hear harsh words. He's not just shaking his fingers and shaming us and pointing us out into the corner. No, no, no. That's not what this is. There's invitation. And every single person in this room has a muscle inside your chest that's beating. And you don't know how long this muscle is going to beat, but doggone it. For as long as it is going, please consider that Jesus Christ and his good news isn't just so that when it ends, you can be in his presence forever. No, he's given us this gift of life so that here and now we can begin to participate and experience the riches and the goodness of this kingdom where he is king and Lord and Savior. And there's this whole world that is in desperate need. And we're a part of it. We have the good news. So let's go and do that. And in practical ways today, we're inviting you to go and speak and visit our table out there. And Jill, also, outside of that very significant stuff, there are Christmas gifts that people can purchase from the Fair Trade store as well. But I hope and pray that that moment of lightness does not take away from the significance of what God is potentially doing in each and every single heart here today. Let's pray.